Our next guests have been patiently seated before me. And before we actually tell you who's here, would you please play that little bit of an intro for a show that uh, is an award-winning show called The Folklorist. Coming up on this episode of The Folklorist, a miraculous event changes the course of a battle. Unprecedented weather wreaks havoc throughout the world and three prisoners of war devise an ingenious escape plan. Journey with me now as we explore these fascinating tales on The Folklorist. So it doesn't do much justice because you don't get to see the visual because there's some really cool visuals for for the opening. But joining me uh, right from uh, on your radio dial, I think it would be from left to right. It could be wrong. Anyways, uh, John Horrigan, who is responsible for giving me a call and saying, hey, look at this dandy little show uh, that has won seven, seven, yeah. And I think, John, you've won five Emmys. And Andrew Eldridge has won four Emmys. Mm -hmm. And Angela, forgive me if I don't get this right, Angela Herrer? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm close. We'll just stick with Angela for now. A show that's called The Folklorist. And I was saying earlier, this is a show that is produced here locally, Mm -hmm. that you guys are the production team, that I'm surprised isn't on the History Channel. So are we. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it isn't because it is that well done. And I, I myself, I, I dabble in audio and visual production. So I have questions of my own, little geeky things. I won't tie up your time, but probably the first and foremost, when did, this, when did the genesis of this idea materialize? Who wants to take that gauntlet? John, <laughs> I got a phone call from a very good friend of mine named Steve Russo, who I had produced sh- shows with in the 1990s. As you know, I'm not 21 anymore, Kevin. And 24. he said, uh, we're thinking about doing a new show. We don't know what it is, but we know it'll be different, but come down and audition. And I said, no. And I'm on the highway when I got this call, and I'm coming up to the new TV exit in Newton, Mass., Highland Avenue. I took the right, and I met with Steve, uh, Andrew Eldridge, and Jesse Kreitzer. And we agreed to, about a week later to do a, a shoot where I just put on my colonial garb and we decided that I would improv the Boston Massacre, not act it out, but just do a narrative of it. And with about 10 minutes left, they said, do you have anything else? And I did something known as the Christmas Truce, which was a ceasefire on Christmas Eve, 1914. And, and, and we'll hear that. You, yeah. We actually, you'll help us set that up. S- certainly. And uh, after that, I forgot. And uh, I got a call, I believe it was December 22nd of 2011. And I had to say, who's this? I don't know. didn't know it was Jesse and Andrew saying, we, you got to see what we've done with your narrative. We brought actors in. And I remember we watched it with our wives um, at this Polynesian restaurant in Newton. And from there, it took off. Ange joined in 2012. And uh, it's just been soaring ever since. Angela, tell us about how, how you got involved with this uh, with this, uh, this show called The Folklorist. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Um, 
So basically, I had just left uh, my job at WHDH, and I was looking around for different opportunities in video production, and I got a call from this little community media center in Newton, which was really intriguing because I was looking for something in a place like that. Um, and I went in for the interview. I met with Andrew and a couple of other people on the staff there, and everybody was just so warm and welcoming. I knew that that was a place I'd love to work. I was also aware of the folklorist, and eventually I started, and I think in August, and then by December, I had sort of been c taken over into the original programming department by Andrew, because I think we worked well together, and I had volunteered on a couple of shoots with John, and we all got along really well, and it just evolved from there. Your turn, Andrew. Yeah, so um, I'd been working at New TV for quite a seven years or six years before that and um, had started working with Jesse to, and working with John in the studio and with the folklorist and um, Jesse had left the station he went on to go get his master's degree at Iowa and so I was there with John and we were like well let's just keep going with the show and see how it see how it flows and um, we did one episode and Ange was on in August and she helped out with that but it, it takes two people I mean, it really should take What's more than two people to talk to me. <laughs> if you would talk to me about the nuts and bolts, what does it take? Wh what do you do without gi giving all your secrets here? What does it take to put this together? Because there's a lot. First and foremost, I'm sure that there's some form of script writing that goes on here. Correct. You also have to put out a casting call. So when after you get done with your part, you can plug in different people. Because if anybody hasn't seen, honestly, and I'm not saying because they're sitting here, I was intrigued. I've watched a third of them so far. I found 12. Is there more than 12? Yeah. There are. Sure. There's about... <laughs> and you're going to be on it one day, there's Kevin, by the way. <laughs> if you don't camp, count yeah, the campfire, I think yeah. there's a in the 40s in the somewhere. 40s. They, yeah, and, this, yeah. and it isn't just... And what's really unique is, is other than seeing John, when he's dressed in period and garb, mm -hmm. is you even have kids. They do the little campfire stories, which right, are very right. intriguing. But yeah. talk to me about what does it take from writing the scripts to... You know, getting you know John to do his, and then plugging in the actors who are enacting stuff. In the early phases of the program, I was improving it, and now as I look back on that, I'm kind of embarrassed. And when Angela stepped in, uh, it was a game changer. Uh, took us to a higher professional level, at level as an administrator, producer, uh, just tweaking our scripts and saying the right thing or different nuances in the way we slung a line. But essentially, I'll try to pitch a, a, a topic to them and give them a treatment. And if I see their eyes light up, I got them. And then we'll work together two or three nights and workshop a script. It takes hours to get the right script because they're looking at it from a teleplay perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, John, you're the historian. You're giving me too much. Mm -hmm. Give me the hero. Take me where and then they're building it visually. Hand it off to them. And then, Ange, what happens after we shoot the narrative of me in period of costume in the, in the studio, then it goes on to Ange and Andrew. Yeah, I mean, basically, Andrew, I don't know if, if what you guys were up to before I, I joined, but I know that it was sort of in its infancy, the stage. Everything evolves. Yeah, everything evolves. Everything evolves. The other producer of the show, Jesse, had left, and uh, Andrew had taken over the show, The Folklorist, and I think we were all just kind of exploring different ways to approach production, and we were open to anything, and I think just mm -hmm. getting together, working out the script, just streamlined the rest of the process. It made the most sense for production because you have to cast it, like you said, and you have to edit it. And I think Andrew had done some great edits with some of John's early work without scripting, and editing those is came. Key. Editing yeah. can be key. Everything has to come together. It's mm -hmm. true, and so we put a lot of emphasis that from the, that point forward on the script because it just helped everything in the end. And uh, the production, I I learned a lot from Andrew. I mean he. He showed me how he was able to accomplish 
shooting all of these parts, casting all these characters, almost single-handedly, pretty much. And uh, I just tried to help facilitate that as well and, and, and find my own kind of niche within that. Now, I'm just going to read off of dictionary.com what folklore is. And the, <laughs> the traditional beliefs, legends, customs, etc. of people, lore of people, the study of such lore... So how does it, how do you come up? Is there any research as far as in some of the tales that you tell? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's. I, I like to think we're like a, like a pop folklore type of show. We we don't stick to like traditional folklore, um, as it's kind of defined by like college professors and things like that. So we we tend to. Um, find like little hidden stories and then really explore that. The nuggets. Yeah, and, and it's something that m- people might not have heard of before um, that just it sounds really cool and really interesting and um, and John's able to kind of bring it and and come up with all these uh, you know great ways to phrase the lines over demons yeah that, that was that that was something that John really was pushing for and we we kind of we, we edited that probably in about four hours and filmed it really quickly with some of our interns and in Dover the- an actual the where it was in Dover, John. It street. was Dover. Yeah, yeah. The, actually, the, oh, we, they went on to the actual uh, Springdale Avenue yeah. Farm Street, and, and in fact, we shot my narrative three different times, yeah. at three different <laughs> locations, and used the studio narrative. Yeah. yeah, but you have like different things that you because you had like drawings that each one of them right. had there, illustrations of what they that they thought they mm-hmm. saw. And it, before I transformed into a historian or a pocket historian, I'm not mm-hmm. really a folklorist or a historian. I'm kind of a time traveler driving without a license. Um, but uh, I was into. I had my Fox Mulder, my X Files years in the '90s, where I was into the paranormal and, and, and unexplained mysteries. And I graduated from that uh, and majored in history in college. And I love weather and war. Um, Ange likes a, a good hero story, good love story. And Andrew just likes something and from pirates, fr- from pirates, and anything maritime related. Andrew likes so. I'll come up with these stories that I've been lecturing on for years mm. to senior nursing homes, colleges, societies, and pitch it to these guys, and I have to take a 20-page story and get it into three. Right. right. And just so and just so folks know, it isn't, if you watch an episode, it isn't just one folklore, but it's a series of... So it's... it's you sp- and so basically, you guys have to put together a number of packages mm-hmm. right. in order and, and kind of weave them all together. What does it take for you to... to Put those together. What what does it take for you to put together an entire show? What's the, the does it vary depending on what you do? Yeah, it's so Andrew. once yeah <laughs> once once we do have John's narrative, we do go into the studio and start to film. And so a lot of our sets that we build, um, we we do it ourselves. And so we'll go down to National Lumber or Home Depot and just grab some wood. I, I was start. interested by the Boston molasses flood oh, one yeah. where the, yep. when the molasses broke free and the. So that was actual molasses that we got donated <laughs> yeah, from the last like molasses company out of New Jersey, and but that didn't come out of a fifty-foot tank by no means. No, that was all miniatures, and so no, I know yeah. that's what I'm saying. Is <laughs> it's crazy? Is I watched, I but it was just the way it was edited, yeah. the way you edited it was yeah. it was cake. Yeah, I mean it was it was a fun piece to film. Literally the whole studio by the end of it was covered in about you know six inches of molasses. Yeah, some of the actors yeah. were covered in. It. it was it was <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, we got to dump them. They, I, they were our actors have been phenomenal, uh, just tremendous at how many people we've got to work with, and um, for them to be, you know, let us dump molasses on them for the first like that was our first shoot too. Um, yeah, we haven't done that. <laughs> we don't dump molasses on them anymore. Joe, you have a question? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you speak about 
the actors and kind of the great actors that you have working on the show with you. Where do you where do you um, get a lot of the actors that uh, are on the show? Um, so basically, we put out a casting call and we we put it on a few different websites. I think New England Film is something we use quite regularly, and a lot of people come from there. We also have kind of created this Facebook group, the Folklorist, and a lot of our repeat actors are friends of ours on Facebook, and so we'll post something and they'll respond to us. So, uh, And I think this show has just grown in the last few years. We've worked with so many people, so more and more people are hearing about us. So we'll just get general emails from people, and we keep them in a log. And when we need parts to fill, we, we reach out to them specifically or you know, look at who comes first. <laughs> I've never met any of the actors or actresses, by the way, except for two boyhood friends that they cast, because they take care of the casting. If people are interested, I tell them to go to the Facebook page, um, send in your headshot, what your background is, and they'll select you. Anybody can be in the show. Anyone. And uh, I recommend anybody that's... If you don't have to have acting experience. They'll know by talking with you and corresponding if you'll fit the piece. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I would ask. This is... I kind of... I'm curious because you gave us a couple of sound clips for our folks to hear. Would it be safe to say that one of these two might be a favorite of somebody's here? John's. Which... If, you, if we were to set up the first one, ask you to set it up, what would be the first one that you would want to... For, for folks to... Here. Well, well, this is the piece that I think set the folklorist in motion. After I recorded that, I went home on Facebook, back when I was on Facebook, um, <laughs> saying that uh, we, we just recorded something unlike anything that's ever been done. I don't know what it is. I can't describe it, but it will certainly be different. And we had shot the narrative of the Boston Massacre, and there was just a, a pickup there, and you have anything else? And I had heard this uh, Christmas in the Trenches song, and I just did this one-off of the Christmas truce. Um, forgot about it for several months, and just before Christmas 2011, uh, December 20 third the guys called me jesse and andrew said you got to see what we did they brought in it was actually new tv um employees that played the role and it was just knocked me for six i still get goosebumps and i get wispy about it uh, being a world war one historian and what they did to it it broke through it got us an emmy award for best promo it got me an emmy award for best host moderator uh it truly set us uh to another level and showed the artistic merit of andrew uh, Jesse and eventually Ann. It is. It's fantastic. It is. So, all right. So let's let's roll that uh, that clip. The Christmas truce. The holidays, a peaceful time. Sometimes we take that for granted. Christmas Eve, 1914. All along the Western Front, World War One. The Great European War is underway. Horrendous casualties. It's about nine o'clock, and suddenly, the fighting stops. No gunfire, no artillery fire, no landmines going off. What's going on? People are taking a break from the fighting. Suddenly, from the British, Canadian, and French side, they hear Silent Night being sung in German by the Prussians. The British respond with their own version of O Tannenbaum.
Christmas truce is underway. The Germans put up a Christmas tree on their side. The French put up their own Christmas tree with candles lit. Heads pop up from trenches. It's safe. Suddenly, men get out of their trenches and walk towards no man's land. They shake each other's hands. They exchange gifts. The Germans bring Bavarian chocolate and beer. The French, the best red wine and cakes. There's chatter. Some speak English. Some speak German. Cigarettes are exchanged. It's Christmas. It rolls into dawn. And under the first light, Germany challenges Britain to a game of soccer. Well, the Germans, they won that game. But word gets back to the high command. What's going on? There's no gunfire. The artillery. Why aren't you lobbing more shells? I don't care if it's Christmas. And slowly but surely, the great European conflict returns. By noon that day, a bullet fired from the German side, a bullet fired from the French side, and hostilities continue. Well played. And we are going to close with, what are we closing with, John? Elizabeth Jennings. Elizabeth Jennings. And what is that? What is that? Those who don't know who Elizabeth Jennings is, who wants to explain that real quick? Uh, essentially, she was uh, thrown off of a trolley car in New York City 100 years before Rosa Parks due to the color of her skin. Okay. So that's how we're going to close out our program today. Uh, I want to thank you guys for coming in and talking about this. Let's find out a little bit more about new TV and uh, how folks can find out more about, about this particular program. Yeah, so um, we do produce it at new TV. We do have uh, an awesome executive director there who allows us to create the show, Bob Kelly. That's what matters. Um, yeah, and so in, he's been able to help us get the show onto Comcast and RCN On Demand uh, throughout New England. And then we took, a, before we got it on there, we took a grassroots approach and uh, sent out the show to it now plays in over 400 community media centers across the country um, so we're very thankful for the community media centers who play the show um, why do you think you've gotten such a positive response uh, for this program um, I mean I'm saying it obviously because I've watched it and I'm, I'm already a fan but why do you think that you're getting such a um, positive response you know it's 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 a quality program um, you know it's it's educational and has historical facts and um, um, people across the country are gobbling up content, and we're happy to provide, be a provider of content for other community media centers. It kind of goes in line with our mission of us being also a community media center. So it's just, you know, yeah, I don't know, yeah. we I have a it, lot of fun, and I think yeah. that that is translated on on film. I think people realize when they see the show how 
how great the crew is just from watching the way they're interacting with each other. People can come on, have a great time on set all day, and they keep coming back, and that's a testament to the spirit of the show. And also that anyone can appear on the program. Mm -hmm. No acting experience required. As Andrew mentioned, Bob Kelly, a a dream of an executive producer, throws you the car key, says bring it home around 1 a.m. with no dents on it, but he's had complete faith in the project. And me personally, being a gadfly, a historical gadfly, working with two artistic greats like Angela Herrera and Andrew Eldridge, I've been blessed. Uh, And there's a reason why you, you have all won awards, because it is the quality of the program. It's exceptional. It's, uh, you're talking to a guy who, uh, you know, does community programming, and a lot of times you go out there, you're shooting a concert, you shoot, you know, you're doing, you, you throw, you know, you put a head and a tail on it, maybe some credits throughout, so you put a bug in the corner so folks know what it is when they turn in, tune in half the way, you know. I think it all boils down to being passionate about storytelling, and I think that's really apparent with the way John introduces every segment and narrates the entire piece and all John the John does act- do a fantastic he's job. He's amazing, amazing fantastic. talent. And, and the different job. the different garb, it's, it's just he's period to each piece. He transports everyone into that story. I think that's very key. Um, we found a great talent with John Horrigan, of course, and all the actors that, that appear on the show were very grateful. But they bring out the best of me. And I was just like you, Kevin. I was just <laughs> going in community television. I got lucky. I met two very talented people and they brought the best out of me. What's the hope for the future of the program? Uh, maybe get some sort of distribution. It would be fun. Uh, an underwriter to keep the show going. Um, those are those are two things. Grants would be awesome too. You know, right now it's just trying to get people to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, if you just search the folklorist on YouTube and you just click subscribe and like a video, that's that means a lot to us too. Um, so I think that's. Yeah, any kind of regional support. We're always looking for sponsors, underwriters, things like that. Yeah. So how many episodes are you in at this time? Am I in? No, I'm, oh, I mean, how many, how many, how many, guys I'm in, I'm in 10, how many episodes of the folklorist are there? 13 right There's now. 13, okay. Yeah. I feel like 20 or 30. I get scared for a yeah. moment because I've only seen a third of them. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they're, they're made for perfect online viewing, too. So um, there's 40 videos on, on, on our YouTube page. And if you go to folklorist.newtv.org, um, you're able to watch all the different, uh, all the different segments. Mm-hmm. Anything that we haven't mentioned? Well, actually, you know what? How about as far as there's a, any, any you know, there's folklore everywhere. Do you ever put out a call for anybody who might have stories that... You could use. <laughs> they do. I don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have plenty of my my own. I have I have hundreds and hundreds, Kevin. But there are other stories that we're learning. Did you know? Uh, when we converse, they'll come up with the fact. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't hear about that. Did you ever know about this story? This. So we've become you know consummate little pocket historians ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that is, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Whenever we hear a great story, we always try to keep it in our pockets for when we come back to the writing table and we go over segments every year and also we encourage people from the community to submit their own stories if they know of great folklore in their area we're always open to doing pieces about that mm-hmm. yeah and they can do it right through the website you know just do a quick little write up and, uh, and the website is what again uh, folklorist.newtv.org <laughs> well Angela uh, Andrew and John I want to thank you uh, for being my guest this evening and Thank sharing you, the details of this fantastic show. And uh, we are going to go out with uh, Elizabeth Jennings, courtesy of the fantastic show, The Folklorist. You've been listening to Monday Night Talk right here on 95.9 WATD. Change doesn't always occur in an instant. 
It can take years, even centuries, for a society to come to terms with its own moral shortcomings. Sometimes those who stand up for what they believe in aren't always remembered, but their acts of courage live on, and in this case, brought a nation one step closer to equality. It was a sweltering Sunday morning in New York City on July 16, 1854. Elizabeth Jennings was running late to church, and during that time, the city was bustling with the clamor of horse-drawn streetcars. But not everyone was allowed to ride these streetcars. You see, they had restrictions, and even though New York had abolished slavery in 1827, segregation was still deeply woven into the fabric of society. Elizabeth was an educated woman from a well-respected family. Devoutly religious and being the church organist, she could not be late to the service. So Elizabeth and her friend Sarah Adams dashed down the city streets in order to make it to church on time. They saw a streetcar in the distance and motioned for it to stop. They rushed aboard, unaware of which passengers would be accepted. But as they entered the streetcar to pay their fare, the conductor stopped them and insisted they get off and wait for the next car. She said she was late for church and couldn't wait for another car. But the conductor wouldn't listen and insisted again that she get off. Elizabeth, however, stood her ground, refusing to budge. The conductor relented and said that she could board the streetcar as long as no other passengers were offended by her presence. Elizabeth, now insulted, said, I'm a respectable person born and raised in New York. I don't know where you were born, but you are a good-for-nothing impudent fellow for insulting decent persons while on their way to church. The conductor loudly informed her that he was a proud Irish immigrant and threatened to throw her out of the car, but Jennings insisted that he wouldn't lay a hand on her. At that moment, he grabbed her, but she quickly clutched onto a nearby curtain. He pulled at her until she lost her grip and pushed her out of the car. Nearby citizens started to notice the skirmish and gathered around to witness what was happening. But as the conductor attended to his frightened horses, Elizabeth climbed right back on. The conductor saw this. You shall sweat for this. As they rode, he saw a police officer and flagged him down. The officer came aboard and ignored what Elizabeth had to say, throwing her to the ground and ruining her Sunday best. After the confrontation, Elizabeth got her father involved, who used his connections to make sure that this injustice would not go unnoticed. He reached out to a powerful friend of the family, Frederick Douglass, who printed the story, and the incident soon gathered national attention. Rallies were held, a new group, the Black Legal Rights Association was formed, and soon after, the Jennings family filed a lawsuit against the railway company. Her father began to search for legal counsel that would help them in their case, and hired 24-year-old Chester Arthur to represent them. On the day of the trial, Elizabeth found herself face-to-face -face with an all-white, all-male jury. It seemed impossible that she would win, but the politically gifted Arthur delivered a convincing case, and remarkably, the verdict returned in her favor. Her victory would signify an important shift in civil rights that would occur over the next 100 years. Although the story of Elizabeth Jennings remains largely forgotten, her personal experience would affect the lives of progressive thinkers like Frederick Douglass or the 21st president of the United States, Chester Arthur. You see, it takes the actions of courageous people to effect change, no matter the cost. And 100 years later, another woman, Rosa Parks, would take a stand against segregation by refusing to surrender her seat, reigniting the fight for equality once sparked by Elizabeth Jennings.